Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Insight. Ali here and joining me is Charlie. How are you tonight? Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Tonight we're discussing a really sad and confusing disappearance and Charlie and I got talking. Who can we get to help us solve this one? We thought of the same person. Joining us tonight is a lovely Marissa from the Vanish podcast. Welcome Marissa. Hello, how are you guys doing? Good. I'm really glad you could be on. I was really excited when you guys asked me to come on, so thank you. Well, we booked you before you were quite as big as you are right now, so we got in really early, <laughs> well, before <laughs> your calendar filled up with requests. That's it. And as I said, tonight we're going to be discussing a really sad disappearance of a person that I've actually gotten attached to in the last couple of weeks. He seems to be a genuinely good guy. So tonight we are talking about the disappearance of Stephen Kocher. Ready? Ready. I'm ready. So Stephen Trell Kocher was born on November 1st, 1979, into a large devout Church of Latter-day Saints or LDS family. He was one of five children to parents Deanne and Rolf. Growing up, he was quite literally a Boy Scout. And right up until he disappeared, Stephen was really close to his family. In particular, his younger brother, Dallin. Stephen grew up in Amarillo, Texas, and he went to school there. And he graduated with a Bachelor of Communications from the University of Utah. Stephen wanted a career in public relations or journalism. That was his goal. He played guitar and tried his hand at songwriting. He even tagged along and played roadie for a friend who was in a band. After school, Stephen served a mission in Brazil for two years, just as his father did before him. Stephen enjoyed genealogy and often took his parents on cemetery tours to show them what he found in his research. So after finishing college and returning from his mission, he worked for his dad for a local newspaper. But his father was the editor there and Stephen wanted to distance himself from his father's position so he could be seen as making it on his own. So in March of 2007, Stephen takes a job for the online version of the Salt Lake City Tribune. It's mostly night work, which Stephen can't get used to. So in July of 2008, he quits his job with the newspaper. After that, he works sales jobs for a while, but mentions to his family and friends that he is struggling with the cold northern Utah winters. So in March 2009, he moves to southern Utah to the town of St. George. After his move to St. George, Stephen does not have much luck finding full-time work. However, in December 2009, he does find a job, even if it was a part-time job, 
he finds a job working for a local window and blind cleaning company. And his job was to distribute flyers. Around this time, Stephen was also subcontracting, putting up Christmas decorations to earn some extra money. Stephen's family said that he was going through a bit of depression during this time, mainly due to his employment situation, which was causing some financial problems. His grandmother gave him a cheque about six months prior to his disappearance to help him out, which he never cashed. The cheque was found in his belongings after he went missing. And a few days before his trip to Vegas, his mother gave him $1,000 to help cover some rent he owed. I also read that his electricity was shut off at some point, which his mother claims that it was the landlord's fault, but I'm not sure if that was the case. I think he was renting a room in a house, not a whole place. So if the electric bill didn't get paid, it would probably be the landlord's fault if the landlord was the one collecting the money from the various people renting rooms. Yeah, I wasn't sure of the exact situation if it was... Yeah, actual rooms or actual apartments, but that makes sense what you say. Yeah, I'm just guessing here. I also suspect that Stephen would have been feeling some pressure to live up to his family's expectations as far as having a successful career, getting married, having kids, that sort of thing, because his brothers and sisters had all done that before him. So we're going to go through a timeline of the days leading of the days leading up to Stephen's disappearance, because it does, it is very telling of his mindset leading up to the day he disappeared. Do you want to start that off, Charlie? Sure. So we're going to embark on what might be the most confusing timeline that I've ever researched. And I think it's really just a matter of there's a lot of misremembered dates out there. And I realized last night, as in the night before we record, that I had the whole thing confused. You'll often see it reported that Stephen traveled to Ruby Valley to visit an old friend who he sort of dated once on December 9th. However, he was at work on December 8th during daylight hours, and then he was back in St. George at a church event on the evening of December 9th. For his trip to have been on the 9th, he would have been driving 120 miles per hour to make it everywhere he was going. So, like I said, it's most likely that this happened on the 10th and not the 9th. And due to some receipts in his car and when certain items were posted to his bank, it wasn't any later than the 10th either. So after this church event on the 9th, it was a Ward Temple night for those who are familiar with LDS Church. After this event, it was started at 6.30, so he's probably done by 9. He talked to his father on the phone. Stephen was about three months behind on his rent, and his landlord was having some trouble getting in touch with him. His parents were the references on his rental application, so the landlord, when he couldn't get in touch with Stephen, called his parents. And then his dad called him to discuss it. So just think either back or forward to being 30 years old, and imagine your dad calling you to talk about your money problems that he just found out about. So the phone call ended with Stephen hanging up on his dad, and he had been grocery shopping, likely at Walmart, right as he was having this conversation. After he hung up on his dad, his groceries made it back to his house, but then Stephen 
drove about 500 miles or about 800 kilometers to Ruby Valley in Nevada to visit a girl that he had briefly dated. He arrived about 11 a.m. on December 10th, so he drove straight on through the night. The visit was not planned, and the girl wasn't even home. She may not have even lived there at the time. Nevertheless, Stephen stayed for a while visiting with the family, and he even had lunch with them. And that's not really strange. He knew the family. He had been there previously. But it's also not strange if you think about the culture of family farmers and ranchers. I mean, if you show up at mealtime, they're going to feed you. That's just how it goes. Here's something I'm not 100% sure about. His gas receipts prove the path he took on this trip. However, there's a route that he could have taken that is nearly 200 miles shorter each way. So that would have been 400 miles he would have saved on this trip. So instead of going up through Salt Lake and over, he could have just gone north through Nevada. Which you think he would have done, because if money was tight, you'd think he'd want to save money on gas, food, etc. Exactly. The only thing I can think of is maybe he just didn't know how to get there from anywhere except the interstate, because he wasn't familiar with southern Utah. Unless there's something else there, though, that nobody's just been able to uncover like there's he has some other connection and nobody's made you know the connection between point a and point b i i always wonder that about this case myself he could have been looking for work he might have been asking around and thought he'd stop at certain towns on the way through with that stephen here we really can't we, we really don't know there is someone who took his gas receipts and the time stamps on those and used a mapping thing to see if he did possibly stop anywhere for a really long amount of time. And I think there's about an hour on his way back that's not accounted for. But not a whole lot. Like, it's pretty clear he didn't stop to sleep, except from the last place he got gas to home, there's no record of that, of course. Regardless, during his visit, he mentioned to the family that he would possibly go to Sacramento which is in California, for those who aren't familiar with U.S. geography, but he decided against it due to some bad weather in the area. After lunch, he turned around and returned to St. George, and once again, instead of just heading south, he went north to I-80 to go over to Salt Lake before dropping south. This again put him in spitting distance of Bountiful, the Salt Lake suburb where his family lived, but not only did he not stop, he didn't even tell them he was going to be in the area. He was close to his family, but it's, I'm again, we're just kind of trying to get in his head a little bit. He may have still been embarrassed or mad about the landlord calling his parents about the back rent and wasn't quite ready to face them. He made stops in Wendover, Nevada, Springville, Utah, and Nephi, Utah along the way, but these appear to probably just be long enough for gas or food. Like I said, there was about an hour between Springville and Nephi that weren't accounted for. That is a lot of driving without a stop. It is a lot of driving. It's a lot of driving, especially since we know he hadn't slept since, I mean, if he showed up for temple night, which he would have been in a full suit at 630 the night before, you know, he was clearly awake for at least an hour. So anyway, he didn't sleep this whole time. There's no time built in here for him to sleep. And somewhere between the Springville and the Nephi pit stops, Stephen's mother calls. 
She said he was upbeat. They discussed his plans for coming home for Christmas. And this is when she offered to deposit the money in his account to cover his back rent. That money stayed in his account and was never touched. We don't know when he arrived back in St. George because nobody saw him. So it's possible at some point between his last pit stop in St. George, he stopped and slept for a period of time. But I mean, that still 24 hours from the Temple night to that last gas stop, 24 hours without sleep at least. We can just kind of guess it was probably 30 or more hours. And I mean, most of us have done long road trips. It is exhausting. I don't know how. I'd hate to think of what his mindset was after not sleeping for 30 hours and driving all that way. Yeah. He wouldn't have been in a good place. I agree. As a family, we road trip a lot. And my youngest, by the time he was two, he had been in 17 states. So, I mean, we road trip a lot. And this sounds absolutely horrendous to me as someone who likes long trips in the car. Yeah, I can only do about eight hours in one day before I'm so mentally exhausted from keeping my eyes open, trying to pay attention for that long. That That's about, about my limit. That's the most I've ever done in one day as the sole driver. All during this time from, you know, the 8th, 9th, 10th in this time, a friend of his from Texas who also had attended, he had gone to a college before University of Utah, and someone who attended that college that he went to before, and it also incidentally happens to be the same college I went to, was trying to get in touch with him through Facebook, phone, and text. And Stephen didn't reply to any of these, though the friends report that they were in fairly regular communication and it was odd for Stephen not to reply. But except for going to visit his friend and her family, there doesn't seem like a lot of reason for all this driving or the foregoing of sleep to do so. He was having financial issues, so and this was pretty expensive. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys imagine could have been motivation for this long and what seems to be spontaneous trip? I almost wonder if he could have had some kind of mental break. I, I don't know. I've been thinking of, as I said before, maybe he was looking for work. Maybe he heard that there may have been certain jobs and thought he'd just stop off and inquire, but I didn't realize he hadn't actually stopped. Yeah, from what I understand, there's not a lot of time in between the different gas stops for him to have stopped anywhere. Yep. And, I mean, I almost wonder if the drive was kind of a small version of what Chris McCandless did, you know, kind of a trip to go find himself, clear his head. But as we talk more, I do lean a bit towards what Marissa said, that there may have been some type of mental health issue that was developing at this time in his life. That, to me, that's the only thing I can think of, unless there's just some connection that's never been made. But like you said, it's not like he stopped or it's not like he had time to stop in a bunch of different places or even if it was just one place there's just not time there like why would you drive all that time to spend an hour somewhere if that's the time that we have left over you know right you do hear those rumors that he traveled in those in in that direction to visit someone that he may have been seeing but again if you're going to meet a girlfriend or boyfriend you stop for more than an hour right 
So on December 11th, Stephen helped two young girls from his neighborhood. They were locked out of their house. He helped them look for their spare key and then called their mother from his cell phone. The following day on the 12th, he was seen leaving his home and then he stopped for gas in Mesquite, Nevada, which is about 45 miles or 65 kilometers away. But no one knows why he was even in Mesquite in the first place. Later that day, he purchased Christmas gifts for his brother's kids, which would be his nieces and nephews, at a local Kmart. This is the last financial transaction according to his bank accounts. One of his neighbors saw Stephen get home around 10 p.m. that night, but then he left about a half hour, about a half hour later. It is not known whether or not he returned later that night, but, and I know we're going to talk about this later, they found a bunch of coats and blankets and a pillow in his car, so that might mean that he didn't come back and that he slept in his car that night. No one's really sure about that. And Mesquite is on his way to Las Vegas, which is where we're going to talk about his next venture out. So it's almost like he went halfway there, stopped... And you would think he w- turned back home because maybe he forgot something he needed. But instead of turning around and going just straight back home, he goes back to St. George. He goes shopping for, I don't know, an hour or two. Then he goes home, stays there for a half hour, then goes back. I just, the shopping trip seems so random in there. Yeah. And then if you're going to stop for half an hour at your house, why leave the Christmas presents in the car? Why not take the presents out and put them in the house? Right. Unless you're planning to go straight from, unless you're planning to stay in Vegas for an extended length of time and then go straight up to your parents' house. I feel like I need, uh, and I know I actually looked at this stuff before, but I feel like I need a visual aid. When every time I think about this case, it's like all over the place he, he was. Yeah, I researched this with Google Maps open. Yeah, I was looking at some maps of, you know, the, the all the places he stopped. So it helped me. But man, it's it's tough, this one. And we will put on our, in our Facebook group. So if you haven't joined the group, join the group. Um, so in our Facebook group and on the website, I will put up maps of his trips leading up to his disappearance. Just so when you're listening to this episode, you can follow along and it may help you... As Charlie said, it does help. It did help us because it does get confusing. Especially if you're not familiar with the area, too. Exactly. So he spoke with several church friends on his cell phone the following morning, December 13, 2009. Which was a Sunday. Correct. Yeah. With my vast knowledge of Mormonism, I do have to say it is a little odd. He had a leadership position in the church for him to go out of town on a Sunday day and not tell anybody until they started calling him that's odd for someone who's LDS especially a leadership position that he was obviously so uh, it meant a lot to him so it does seem weird to me that he would go to Vegas and what will become apparent soon for reasons that may not have been important as far as life and death go it may not have been a job position we don't know so some of his church friends call him and he tells them that he is in Las Vegas, but he doesn't elaborate on why he is there and none of his friends ask apparently. One of his friends, Greg Webb, calls about a church meeting because he was in Las Vegas as well and didn't know if he was going to be back in time and wanted Stephen to cover for him. 
Stephen does offer to return to St George, but Greg tells him not to worry. This is the last known contact with Stephen. And the meeting that he was covering, again, pulling from my life experience, it, <laughs> it was actually an organizational meeting. It's not like a church service. It's a very basic meeting that they have fairly frequently. So for him to offer to turn around, to go back for it, that makes me then think what whatever he was in Vegas for wasn't that important, that he would turn around for a minor meeting. And what strikes me as odd is that several people made contact with Stephen relatively soon before he disappeared. We have Greg Webb. He also talked to his bishop, his family, also whoever he was living with. Did not one person ask him what brought him two hours away from his home? If I was in Sydney for the day and someone called me, they would ask me what I was doing. If I went to stay with someone, they would ask me what I was doing. My point is, someone who talked to Stephen must know why he went to Vegas. There is every chance that this may not be the correct answer, but at least it would be something. And it may be information that's just not public. I know we talk about a lot of pieces that don't fit or pieces we're missing, but, you know, we do realize that just because we're missing them doesn't mean they're missing from, you know, the police or the entire narrative. That's true. Especially with Greg, if he's in Vegas and Stephen's in Vegas, I just find it very hard to believe that they wouldn't be, the conversation wouldn't go towards, oh, what are you in Vegas for? Right. They're in the same town. I think that's really strange too, because, you know, when when I'm traveling somewhere, I'm usually telling multiple people about my travels, you know, like, oh, I'm going into the city to go here or there. It's just something that you talk about. You don't just say, oh, I went to Vegas and that's it. Right. And the other thing is, if Stephen was hiding why he was there, why did he even say he was there? He could have, (coughs) I'm sick. I can't come to church today. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't really hiding because he was saying he was there, but yet he wasn't saying why he was there. That also seems odd to me. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing is very strange. So video footage from two security cameras shows Stephen parking his car on December 13 at a over 55's community estate in Henderson, Nevada. Stephen then walks away with a firm step as though he had a specific destination in mind. About six minutes passes from the time Stephen's car is first seen at six minutes to 12 until he walks past the first security camera at exactly 12 noon. He is walking alone, and to me, he doesn't appear to be disorientated or otherwise impaired in any way. He seems to be walking like he has a destination in mind, as I said, and that he parked where he parked for a reason. The second video camera picks up Stephen's car in the background, again at 6 minutes to 12, and then the image of Stephen walking at about 25 seconds past midday. So from that we can take that he waited in his car for about six minutes before getting out. To me, it does kind of seem that he may have had an appointment with someone at 12 noon and being a punctual guy, he arrived a couple of minutes early. But again, unless Stephen himself tells us, we will never know what Stephen did while he waited. It's just a shame he didn't make a couple of phone calls while he sat in the car. And I saw that he had a folder in his hand in the security footage, and there's some speculation that maybe it was a portfolio or a resume. And 
he didn't tell people because he didn't want to jinx it or have that added pressure of people knowing and then wondering and then calling you and asking you about the job? I've always felt about that, too, that if that were the case, that he if he had met someone, whether it was through the Internet or through an ad somewhere, and this person had shady intentions, let's just say, and somehow talked him into thinking that he needed to keep this meeting a secret for one reason or another. I mean, you could speculate all day about that, but that's just something that I've tossed around myself. That's a good point, too. Because I've thought of that as well, but then if that was the case, wouldn't there have been some kind of sort of quote-unquote paper trail as far as internet search or phone history when there's not? Like, it didn't have the internet on at home, and that they checked his computer anyway, and there wasn't any strange, suspicious internet searches or emails that we know of. And yeah. every phone call on his phone was people that he knew. So unless he was using a library computer, because they don't log who uses those for what purposes, but you would think there would be some type of phone contact communication, even a phone call to say, okay, I'm on my way, or okay, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I agree with you. That's what's so puzzling. Unless he had like a burner phone or something, <laughs> then we're getting very spy-ish. Yeah, there's. it's so puzzling how... Because it does look so much like that's what he's doing. He's there to meet someone. But where the heck did he go? And what what brought him there? And it kind of makes me think that he had been there before. Because when he gets out of the car, he doesn't stop to take in his surroundings. He doesn't stop to look at house numbers. He just walks. That's a good point. Right. He was very clear on where he was going. That is interesting. I hadn't thought that he had been there before. I was actually wondering if when he started walking down the street before he got on the camera, that he saw the person he was meeting or their car parked. But you can't see that on the surveillance camera because these surveillance cameras, so for people to just kind of get an idea, they were pointed at the driveway of the people who owned and in front of their garage so they were really property cameras. So they only caught people on the street almost by accident, just kind of incidentally. So you don't really see very much past immediately in front of their house. So I was thinking if he was walking down the street and he saw the car he was meeting, he just headed straight for it. Yeah. There is a white SUV in the security footage that people do like to bring up that this was the person he met. The police did find this person and she ended up being a real estate agent who worked out of one of the homes in the street. On the family's website, they actually say she was picking up her mom. Okay. It was the daughter of a resident or something, because they see her come back later on in the fil in the footage. Oh, okay. Well, they did ask her if she remembered St if she remembered seeing Stephen, and she says she doesn't remember seeing him. In the timing, she would have been on the street the same time he was. But in that area, a clean-cut white guy wouldn't have stood out. So she could have seen him, yet not processed. Yeah. He looks like the, the like typical guy. You wouldn't notice him walking through that neighborhood. It wouldn't make an impression. And I guess that's another thing. But 
There has never been a 100% positive identification that this is indeed Stephen in the footage. I mean, I know it's strongly suggested and it's written about like it is Stephen and the family says that it is Stephen. But I think it's worth putting out there that there is a possibility that it's not him. I mean, as you said, he's just your normal average clean cut all American guy. He, He could be anyone. Yeah, that's a good point. I never actually thought of it being nor not being him in that video. It's not like it's a clear footage and you get dead on his face. You get the side on view. The idea that it's him is more circumstantial because his car, you know, was found at the end of that road. But you're right. We don't know that that was him. And we don't know that he was the one who drove the car and parked it. Yeah, it could have been somebody dumping a car in a random place for all we know, I guess. But it's really worth watching this footage because I found it quite unsettling. We will put the links up in our usual places, as well as the map of the driving destinations and the phone pings, which we'll get into now. So about five hours after Stephen was last seen on the was last seen on the surveillance footage, he cell phone pinged a tower several miles north of where his car was found. Two hours later, his cell phone signal was again picked up in a subdivision again a little bit further north. At 6am on December 14, the day after Stephen was last seen, someone used the phone to check his voicemail messages at a third location. The signal stays there until, I say, the battery died two days later. Okay, so looking at the map, the first signal was picked up at a driving destination of about 14 miles or 22 kilometres. I don't know if he's still walking at this stage or if he got a lift or the bus, but he is still in somewhat of a heavily populated area. Yeah, I did the math and everywhere his phone pinged was within walking distance of when he had it had last pinged. So from where you see him on or you see his car and or him on the surveillance, you then five hours later, I mean, 14 miles, that's about right. And then two hours later, wherever he was, that was about right. Except, I mean, he was wearing jeans. Whoever was in the footage appeared to be wearing jeans and a button-down shirt, which isn't exactly going for, you know, a 14-mile walk. I mean, walking around for seven hours is a very long time to be walking. I agree. But again, if his mental state isn't perfect, or he could have been trying to clear his mind, and who knows? I don't know. What if he got into another vehicle? What if he, that was him, and he gets out of his car, gets in the vehicle with somebody else, and who knows what they're doing, but that could account for him being in different places at different times, too. There are so many ways all of this could have played out, because we really don't know anything after that car was parked. We don't even know if it was him who parked it, if we're, you know, being completely honest. You know, I always feel shaky when we're doing a lot of speculation, but that's all there is here. So it's obvious that Stephen, or at very least his cell phone, was going in a journey in a particular direction. And all the pings, as well as where the car was located, they are all in heavily populated areas. At least a distance of 20 miles or about 32 kilometres. So I guess the number one question in my mind, looking at and reading all of this information, is, is that Stephen with his cell phone? 
did they I could not find did they ever find his cell phone in the area it was it last pinged before it went dead? It's never been found. I didn't think so, which that seems odd as well. Like it almost sounds like the cell phone was just kind of abandoned in that spot and surely they searched there for it or the battery died. I wonder how long was it again between the time that that he was seen on the video and when his cell phone stopped pinging? Two days. I wonder if his phone would have would have lived that long without being charged. And he you know? didn't have his cell phone charger with him, which we'll go into later when we talk about what he did and didn't have with him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't know because I don't know what time. I'm assuming it was a cheap talk and text phone if, you know, he didn't have a lot of extra resources and he was probably not using, you know, a data phone. But I don't know. And maybe if you aren't using it the whole time, I mean, the battery would last longer. Right. I just think it's strange that he had all that all that communication leading up to midday that he was seen getting out of the car, if we're saying it's him, and then nothing for the days after. Yeah, and especially considering his phone was obviously moving during this time. It's very strange. So on December 14, 2009, Stephen's car was found abandoned in a cul-de-sac in Henderson, Nevada. As I said, this was part of an upscale over 55s community known as Sun City Anthem. A phone message is sent to Stephen's phone saying that the car has been abandoned, which no one responds to. It takes three days for Stephen's parents to be contacted about the abandoned car and they head down to Nevada with Stephen's brothers within hours of being notified. They search all over Henderson, they ask the residents if they saw anything, and they hand out flyers. They check hospitals, restaurants, even the county jail and morgue, but no Stephen. Obviously, they were confused to why Stephen was there, because he hadn't told anyone he was going to Nevada for any reason. They check the car, and it starts right away. And it had about a half a tank of gas, so car trouble was ruled out. What we do know is that he never walked past that camera again, and he didn't go back to his car. So whatever happened that led to him vanishing, it happened in that housing development. Now, as I said, this is an over 55s development, and I'm going to generalise here, but in these communities, the residents know what's going down. They are looking out their windows, they're doing some gardening, they're walking their dogs. To me, it's very strange that no one noticed a young man walking in the area. So either this retirement community is a rarity, or Stephen quickly entered a house or car. But we'll come back to that more in theories. So in Stephen's car, he leaves a shaving kit, clothing, a pillow and blanket. He also leaves a heap of coats. So as Marissa said earlier, it does appear that he may have been sleeping in his car while he was driving around during the days before he disappeared. In the back seat, there were still the wrapped Christmas presents that he purchased a few days earlier. His cell phone and wallet with driver's license was missing. I think it's a fair assumption that he took those with him. He had left his laptop and cell phone charger at home, which to me indicates that he didn't intend to be gone from home longer than a day or two. He had plans that evening at 7pm to be back in St. George, I know you'll when you look it up, it says that he was going home teaching, and that's just a 
program within the church where every family is assigned a home teacher, usually a pair of them, who visit them once a month just to check in, see if they need anything, see how things are going, maybe do a little devotional with the family. It's just kind of a point of contact to keep all families, making sure everyone's being taken care of and what they need. So that's not something he would have necessarily shirked, especially since he had just recently made the appointment. So I think he planned on being back in St. George in time for that seven o'clock home teaching appointment. And leaving his charger at home supports that, but it does confuse me why, if he did go home, why did he leave the Christmas presents in the back seat? Yeah, I too wonder about the cell phone charger. I don't ever leave home without one, unless it's an accident. Yeah, I always have one with me too. But I also have a smartphone and my battery dies, you know, (laughs) halfway through the day if I don't have a charger. I guess if I had a talk and text phone, maybe I wouldn't think about it as much. But if I was traveling, I would want to make sure I had a charger backup. So extensive searches were conducted near the Henderson community where Stephen was last seen and right throughout that Las Vegas area, and nothing turned up. Initially, the searches were mostly coordinated by his family because law enforcement wasn't initially involved. The problem was that his car was parked illegally and the family needed to move it. That is what law enforcement saw as, I don't know, the crime going on here. So his car also wasn't processed. His parents did search it and found nothing out of the ordinary, nothing they wouldn't have expected. And so they went ahead and drove it home. I mean, there's no swabbing for DNA, dusting for prints, any of that. And since those things can't be dated and surely he had friends right in his car, I mean, it's debatable how much useful information would have been gained, but we'll really never know. I think Checking the um, steering wheel for fingerprints probably would have been the most helpful because that might have confirmed whether or not, well, it could have confirmed someone else drove the car after Stephen had. I mean, if they did use, if they did do the DNA, as you said, they can't really date the DNA, but they could have excluded family members and friends and seen if there was anyone that the family didn't know. I don't know if that would be any help. I think they may have looked into that if there was signs of foul play, but because there weren't, that was that would have been a lot of expense for somebody who appears to have left voluntarily, or at least early on, it looked voluntary. I was just going to say, I wonder about the position of the seat when they found it, if it was exactly where he would have had it had he been driving or not, or somebody his height, you know, I, I wonder about that too. I just find it frustrating in cases like this that the police just don't take it seriously if it's a grown man or or even grown woman. If things like this are checked, if the positions of the seats and things like that are checked early on, I know some of the time it's a waste of their time, but it could solve a lot of these cases or get evidence early on so we're not wondering seven years later. I see this constantly And I wish that people would just say, okay, hey, let's not touch it until we can locate the, the driver or owner or whatever you want to, you want to call it. Uh, Let's just leave it here. I mean, tow it, leave it here, whatever, until we know that this person's okay. 
That's what I wish they would do. The family went ahead and had the car investigated as best they can, and they had a narcotic-sniffing dog check out the car, and there were no signs of illicit drugs. They hired a private investigator who canvassed the neighborhood, but aside from finding that surveillance tape, no one reported seeing anything or nobody remembered seeing anything. Like I said, he probably wouldn't have stood out that much, maybe in that immediate neighborhood, but once he got out to the greater Henderson area... I don't think he would have stood out very much. Thank goodness for that security footage, because without that, we would have nothing. I read that the the house was, he was a former policeman, and he liked keeping an eye on his house. And I know Marissa's covered so many cases where the abandoned car is the only piece of evidence. I can't think of one off the top of my head where they did search it initially. I mean... It's so common that this happens. I wish that, and I know they can't do that for every abandoned vehicle because it happens so frequently, but I think it would be a good step if we could just, you know, maybe just not go trampling through the inside of a vehicle until we know that there isn't a sign of, of foul play or something involved. Right. When they contacted his parents and said, you know, we found his car and it's abandoned, surely they said, well, and nobody's heard from him in five days. And at that point, there should have been a pause and, a, okay, well, let's go to the car and let's search it. You, police go to the car and search it and investigate a little bit because he hadn't been heard from in days at that point. Yeah. We had said Stephen owned the laptop that he left behind. And it was forensically searched and turned up nothing. There were no map searches or a search for cheap places to eat along all these routes he was driving. However, he did not have internet at his rental, like we said, and his parents said he'd go to the library. And if you use a library computer, you usually have to use your library card to access the internet, but the library does not keep any records on user activity. So there's no way to see if he used a library computer for a Craigslist search or job searches or anything like that. They have conducted numerous searches in the Nevada desert since then. And I mean, just a little over a year ago, there's this nonprofit group called the Red Rock Search and Rescue that runs searches, especially for cold cases. And I mean, they really should be commended for the work they do. I know, Marissa, you've also had, you've talked about groups on your show, like with dog search and rescues that go into these cold cases. Oh, yeah. And and most of them are volunteer groups. And I know one that I interviewed, uh, Damien Sharp's mom, who is a state coordinator for the organization called Q. And there's organizations like this all over the country, and they really do fantastic work for you know, little to or nothing really, but they're just motivated to help others, which is a wonderful thing to see. Especially when you think about what they're looking for. You know, I always think, oh, these search parties, those are great. And then I stop and think, you know, they know what they might find and they still go out there and look. However, even with all this hard work and searching, nothing has been found in relation to Stephen. And like nothing... Not not even a trace, not a dropped wallet, not a cell phone, nothing. 
And but the Nevada desert is vast. Yes. So another kind of odd twist that this case has. Um, early on, there was some speculation that Stephen's disappearance was connected to another disappearance, and that is 28-year-old Susan Powell. Her case is another one that has gotten a good bit of media attention over the years. Susan was last seen in West Valley City on December 7th. The only links between her and Stephen are very circumstantial. They were the same age, both LDS and active in the church, and they're from the same state and disappeared around the same time. If you look into Susan's disappearance, you will know that these cases are not linked to each other. But we will talk about it because it that information is out there. You'll see that if you look into this case. Her story is so messed up about, I mean, she's never been found, but the circumstances surrounding it are really sick and disturbing. If you want to learn more about Susan's disappearance, we are recommending Sword and Scale. I believe he did two episodes about, not just necessarily about her, but also about what happened after her disappearance. Investigators did look into the possible connection between the two cases briefly early on in the investigation. Susan's husband, Josh, and his father had suggested that Susan and Stephen may have run off together to Brazil. The rumor stated that Susan may have ran away from her family intentionally. At the time, she was married with two young boys. It is thought that she may have wanted to walk away from a challenging home environment and possibly Stephen followed to meet her. The investigators couldn't find any connection between the two disappearances, and there's no evidence that they even knew each other. That brings us to the fact that Josh's father appears to have been obsessed with Susan. In the years following her disappearance, Journals were found where he wrote about being in love with her, and they also found thousands of pictures he had taken of Susan. Another sick twist to this is that he had taken pictures of young children and wound up serving about 30 months in prison for this. The most tragic twist in this case is that Susan's husband, Josh, ended up committing murder-suicide and killing both of their children and himself in 2012. Josh has always been considered the main suspect in Susan's disappearance. On the day that Susan went missing, the whole family actually went missing. Susan, her husband, and their children. The police entered their home trying to find them, and they found fans blowing on a wet spot on the carpet. The evidence did show that Susan's blood was in the house, but we don't know if it's that wet spot in particular. I, I guess we don't know if that information was ever released. If you look at this whole story... It's. It looks like Josh definitely was involved in the disappearance of his wife and possibly his father somehow connected as well. We don't know. It's kind of hard to speculate. It is crazy that he was in love with his son's wife, but we don't know if he was involved in her disappearance as well. But that's pretty much the only connection between the two of them is that they went missing around the same time. Hers clearly seems to be easily explained, whereas there is still a lot of mystery around Stephen's disappearance. Yeah, I think it's telling that her husband and his dad were so willing to go, oh, well, clearly she ran off with this guy she doesn't even know. It feels like just a deflection that then got picked up on because they were both kind of, well, especially Susan Powell's case was high profile in Utah. I remember hearing about it when it first happened, 
hers, but I don't remember hearing about Stephen's disappearance until some time later. Yeah, same here. I also find it very hard to believe that Susan would run off and leave her two boys. And what I've learned about Stephen in the last couple of weeks, I don't think he would be the type of person to run off with Susan and leave the boys behind. I think that if he was going to run off with Susan, he would take the boys as well. It's unfortunately pretty clear what happened to Susan. It's just unfortunate that we don't know where she is. Or she, you know, her family doesn't have that type of closure. So there has been a couple of apparent reported sightings of Stephen. The first one was that a man reported to police that he spoke to Stephen twice at the Best Buy store in Henderson on Super Bowl Sunday in 2010 which would have been a little over a month since Stephen was last seen. The man's wife and another person, they were present and they agree that it was definitely Stephen. When this man went to the local police to report the sighting, the detective assigned to the case treated the information with suspicion, particularly regarding the date, even though the man had a date stamped receipt from the store. When the man related the whole interaction and what the person looked like to Stephen's parents, they said it sounded exactly how Stephen would have acted. Workers at the International House of Pancakes in Flamingo also report seeing Stephen for three weeks straight. Apparently this man was homeless, disorientated, sunburnt and would come into the restaurant asking for three or four glasses of iced tea. So of course the family head straight there. And although his family staked out the restaurant for four days, they did not see Stephen there or this mysterious homeless man. Okay, I'm going to point out something that may seem really odd if this was him anyway. Mormons don't drink tea. Even if he had kind of had a mental break, I, I don't see him naturally ordering something he probably had never had a drink of in his life. No, I agree because I think if he had a mental break, he would still stay. He would still stay loyal to what his beliefs were. It would, it would just be automatic. Yeah, it would be automatic. Dietary restrictions he had his entire life, he would stick with. You've never had this drink before in your entire life. You don't just want, you know, have a mental break, and and that's what you go to. I mean, right. I could be wrong, but I I agree with you. It doesn't seem like the most like if he typically drank lemonade you'd think he'd walk in and just order that because it would be exactly what what would come come to mind and lastly bus riders in the las vegas metro area reported seeing Stephen riding buses there one story was that a bus driver had a conversation with a man who looked like Stephen, and this man was asking the bus driver questions about jobs in the bus service but none of these sightings have ever been verified and I guess the lesson in all of this is, if you think you do see a missing person, maybe try to sneakily take a photo. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, That may have helped in the Best Buy situation. Uh, one of the families that I spoke to recently, what they're doing is they have like business cards made up with a QR code. So like they ask people to scan it, like keep it in their wallet and scan it if they think they see him. They take a picture of him. And I thought that was like a brilliant idea. Yeah, that I remember that episode. That episode actually mm -hmm. stuck with me for a number of reasons that are off topic here. But one thing that has interested me that I've learned on your show is that 
if someone is homeless and they're reported missing, that doesn't necessarily mean even if they even if like a homeless shelter finds out their identity that they will then turn them over or report that that's where they are they won't confirm necessarily yeah, that they're they, there yeah. like they have a right to be homeless but if they're having mental health issues maybe they do need a fit i don't know it's i felt a little torn when i heard that i've been thinking about it for weeks now yes it's very it's a very slippery slope because there's privacy issues mm-hmm. but you know you can't what if this person really needs help and they're there, but all they can do is encourage them to contact their families? So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So if the family did decide to investigate homeless shelters in the Nevada, California, Utah area, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll get any information back. And on the other hand, their mission is to help these people and they won't come if they don't feel like they're their privacy will be respected. If they feel like they'll be turned over to the authorities, they're not going to come to the homeless shelter and get whatever help they can get. So I I, I see it as a, a, you know, an issue I'm going to go back and forth on for a while. I guess one of the reasons, too, they can't, the homeless shelters can't go release information to families is, I mean, what happens in the case where this person's escaping a domestic violence situation? And if that person comes in looking for that other person, the homeless shelter tells them, they could be putting them back into a dangerous situation. I agree with you. The only thing that I could think could be like a good middle ground for this issue is if somebody, say you're working at a homeless shelter and you see somebody you know they're missing, you contact the police, the police confirm it, talk to the person, the person says, don't tell them where I am. So they just contact the family and say we found this person and they're fine but they don't want any contact i mean to me that just seems like a that could be a, a middle ground maybe well let's go ahead and jump into the theories of what happened to steven and i mean this most of this episode was speculation and we're gonna go just a little bit farther so the first theory is that steven left to start a new life elsewhere It's been floated that it may be Brazil, even without Susan Powell. And because he was familiar with the area and he had previously served a mission for the church there. And his passport was initially reported as one of the missing items. However, it was found in his room later. And it's unlikely that he left the country or left the state through any method that required you to put a name on his ticket. So... He didn't get on a plane. That's that's very, very unlikely. So the first question we really do have to ask if we're going to talk about he went to live a new life, we have to think, why would he? What is the reason here? And there is a lot of internet speculation on this. He did have financial issues, though disappearing without taking your money with you doesn't exactly help those. But one that comes up over and over and over and over again that we're going to have to address just because of how often this comes up is that he was gay and he was living this secret life in direct contradiction with the teachings of the LDS church. The people who are engaging in this conjecture don't know Stephen, never met Stephen, and in threads i've seen this actually 
People who do know him say, I really don't think he was. He hadn't confided in anybody. He had never... If this was a secret, it was a very big secret. Maybe he left to meet a man in Henderson. Maybe he went to live a life as a gay man without having the pressure of his family or the disapproval. Or possibly he wasn't gay, but he was in a relationship with a woman who wouldn't have been accepted. Not Susan Powell. We're done with... It's not Susan Powell. But a showgirl or even a prostitute or maybe a married woman. I have two big issues with this. these whys. And the first one is there's no evidence. There's There were no romantic emails. All of his phone calls have been accounted for. There was no, you know, bundle of love letters in his desk drawer. And there weren't even signs he was pulling away from the church. He was in a leadership position. He bought gifts for Christmas and planned to spend a religious holiday with his religious family. He was making appointments to go home teaching. That that just doesn't sound like a guy with one foot out the church door. Exactly. And he did he did offer to go back that day to cover for his friend. If he had this big liaison planned, he wouldn't then ditch boy slash girl to then go back. Yeah, and that's exactly my second big issue with this. Who like backs out of a romantic meetup or hookup that is that secretive to go back to run a planning meeting. I mean, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Whatever he was in Vegas for wasn't worth not dropping to go help run this meeting. Whenever I see the he walked away or she walked away theory tossed around, I really feel like, say he had a, stolen or embezzled money from the church or something and you had evidence of that it'd be obvious right but to me with him it's like either there's just isn't any evidence of something that was going on who knows what it was but either it just hasn't been found or that's just not what happened I mean there's nothing that's like a clear indicator that he would have walked away for some reason. I mean, and even if you walk away from your life, you don't have to stage your disappearance. It's not like he was a 17-year-old runaway. He could have just picked up and moved across the country and distanced himself from his family. It's not... To stage your own disappearance, there has to be clear motive for, for wanting to get away, in my opinion. I know a couple, they had a couple of kids too. They moved out of Utah for a job. So they moved a couple of states away and they just kind of faded out of the church. And I don't think their parents knew for like two years that they weren't going to church. I mean, this isn't like a compound cult situation. You can leave the church. You don't have to disappear to do it. And so if he was, had a, you know, wanted to get out of the church, he could have, like you said, he could have just moved to another state and been done that way. But as you said, he was showing no indications of wanting to get out of the church. I think a lot of people don't understand Mormonism, and that is leading to some of the people thinking this is what he would have had to do to live openly as a gay man, is to totally disappear. And that's not true at all. Yeah. I agree with you. I think it's a lot of just uh, ignorance. I don't want to say ignorance, but. It's a misunderstanding. I Yeah. Well, as I was reading some of the internet messages from people who are obviously not Mormon portraying Mormonism and 
the strictness of it and stuff. It really reminded me of our Lindy Chamberlain episode where people were portraying her as a religious nut because she belonged to a church they didn't understand. You know, we don't really have evidence I was going to start a new life. And then if we really think about the practical side of it, so if I was going to start a new life, the first thing I would do was not take the only thing you can trace me by, my phone. I would not, that you would have left behind. He left nearly everything else he owned, but he took his phone. But then if I was going to take my phone, thinking nobody was going to look for me or not understanding how cell phone pings work, I mean, I would have taken the charger. Why take your phone if you're not going to take a charger? I wouldn't have told people where I was, or I would have told them I was somewhere else. I mean, he could have told them he was in Phoenix. He didn't have to say he, you know, what city he was in. I also wouldn't have left my car in a neighborhood where it would be called into the police sooner rather than later. I would have parked it at an airport or a bus station, somewhere it could sit for months without anyone noticing. And then I would have loaded my pockets with cash. I wouldn't have left an uncashed check from my grandma behind. I wouldn't have bought gifts with my limited funds. And I wouldn't have left $1,000 in my bank account and walked away. And if I was taking my wallet, my ID, and my bank cards to also traceable things, if I ever used them, I would take my passport. But I wouldn't have taken those things. So his phone went dead, his financial transactions on his account stopped, and he left behind this money. So if he was really trying to leave on purpose, he did it wrong. He made it, he did nothing right in this. And I know, you know, we've talked a little bit about the likelihood he would have done it to leave the church or that leave the disapproval of his family and his successful siblings. But his family didn't seem to be like that. They, I mean, his mom sent him the money for the rent. I'm sure they were like, okay, Stephen, you're 30. Let's start getting it together. But they still helped him out. It doesn't really feel like he was in a position where he felt he had to flee them. And if we're going to say that it's his fear of disappointing his family and friends about his belief status or his sexual orientation or his success in life, then how can he stand watching them looking for him? I mean, I think that would be even harder. I'd believe he committed suicide before I'd believe that he would watch his friends and parents on TV looking for him and be fine with that and just not make contact again. I just don't see that happening. That actually kind of leads us to our next theory. So another theory that I guess isn't as popular or preferred by people as the others is that did Stephen go to Vegas to commit suicide? The reasons behind this would be along the same lines as running away, that he was depressed or that he had let his family down due to sexuality or his financial issues. I think it's hard to look at this case and not consider that Stephen may have come to Nevada to commit suicide, especially after all these years have passed. I mean, isn't it likely he would have reached out to his family and friends at some point? I didn't mention this before, but Stephen's father died in February 2011, suddenly, but from natural causes. I did read in one article he died from toxic shock syndrome. Now, I guess I've never been in the mindset of disappearing, but as I said before, Stephen and his family were close. Stephen would call his parents at least once a week. Now, at some stage in the last five years, he would have found out that his father had passed away. 
And I just feel that there is no way that the Stephen that I've read about and researched for the past couple of the past couple of weeks, there is no way he wouldn't have contacted his family. I actually truly believe that if Stephen is alive, he would have reached out to them in some way. That's the deal breaker for me. One of the thoughts I had, and I, this is going to make it sound like I know Stephen or something, but I just don't imagine he would have committed suicide somewhere where he wouldn't have been found. I always say, how do you commit suicide and hide your body? I know it's been done. People can jump off a bridge and never be recovered or something. But unless he went out into the desert so far and nobody's looked there, I just... That theory always blows my mind. And how would he have killed himself? It's not like like we know he had a gun and where his phone was pinging was in populated areas and... I that one I don't buy that one for this case. I mean if his car was parked on the edge of the desert or the edge of a state park then maybe, but in the middle of a populated area where you have to walk many 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 miles and you're still in a populated area, I just can't see that that just doesn't make sense. No. Exactly. The 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 location is far too specific. And if we're going down the road that it was him in the surveillance video, he just looks too focused in the video. The way he walks, he crosses the street, he walks past the houses, like he knows where he's going. I mean, he would have, as you said, if he was going to the desert to kill himself, why didn't he drive there? Yeah, I don't know, but there are dozens upon dozens of areas where Stephen could have ended his life much closer to his home. Why would he go to Vegas for that? Why park in that over 55s community? And if the family doesn't think he could commit suicide, if they think he wasn't capable of that, and like Charlie said, the search teams are looking and they aren't finding anything. So that leaves hope for me that he may be still alive. So the third theory is foul play. And while we don't have any suspects or persons of interest to kind of you know, focus in on or on the what or the why of, of who would have had a motive to harm him. There has been a lot of speculation about this. A lot of people focus in on there being some sort of shady Craigslist ad out there that he responded to, and it was most likely for a job. As we said earlier, there's no trail, email, phone, anything like that, that would suggest that. But you never know. There are some places on the internet that he could have gotten in touch with someone. He could have responded to um, a classified ad somewhere, and we just don't know how that response happened. I mean, it obviously wasn't on his cell phone, as far as we know. Um, like you were saying, when he gets out of his vehicle, he's looks like he's carrying a folder, if it is in fact him, and he looks like he's on a mission and he knows where he's going, but there's never been any tie between him and any house in that that subdivision. So what was he doing there and why hasn't anyone been able to tie him to that? We may never know. One thing that I wonder about is if somebody had him meet them there and possibly could that person be connected or 
know someone in that subdivision and said, hey, I'll meet you there. I'll pick you up. Why don't you park at the end of this road? Nobody will bother your car there. My mom lives there or something, you know, something to that effect. We may never know, but when I was reading up about this online, this does seem to be the most popular theory, although there really isn't much to suggest that this is actually what happened to Stephen. It makes sense if he was picking up odd jobs that he would go there to look for a job or whatever. But like you said, someone would have had to tell him, hey, park at the end of my grandma's cul-de-sac. You know, they, and there's no record that anyone told him that. I don't know. I'm not a criminal mastermind, but I wouldn't lure someone to a well-populated area where I run a high chance of being spotted. So that is also kind of interesting to me that he was taken to and through well-populated areas the entire time, if if we trust the cell phone pings. But also, like I wondered, what if he was... I don't want to say Lord, but what if he did respond to some kind of ad for a job and something like he went there and something went wrong and, you know, you could speculate all day and this wasn't a planned murder abduction, but something happened, whether it was by accident or on purpose or, you know, uh, uh, miscommunication mis, uh, or something that led to an argument who knows but what if it wasn't intentional and it was really initially about a job I think that out of all the options I mean we have three basic possibilities here suicide voluntary disappearance and foul play and that scenario that you just said Marissa I mean that that's the only one to me that makes sense yeah, why he would go there and know that specific place to park. Because I I had the the idea that, okay, he was having trouble keeping a job. He quit one. He was let go from another. He was having trouble finding steady employment. He moved to a new city. He was going on these weird drives. And he drove halfway to Vegas, went back, went shopping, went home, went back again. I mean, it's all odd. So what if he did have a mental break? And what if he did park there and he walked to all those places his cell phone pinged? But why did he go to Henderson to begin with? That's a a huge missing piece. Like, I guess we'd say that is the missing piece. If we knew why he went to Henderson, we could probably figure out what happened. Maybe he met someone along his travels, right? And they said, hey, meet me in Vegas at this address on such and such date. I have work for you. You know, that's a good point. Any of those pit stops where he got gas, he could have met someone else going through the area, chatted for a minute in line, and the guy said, oh, I have work in the Vegas area. Yeah. And that could explain the portfolio as well. It could be, hey, help me hand out flyers or magazine subscriptions, and he's just gone around to all these populated communities. And at the end, somehow, some way, he's ever met someone that, isn't a nice person or this job has gone wrong and that's what's happened right but yeah meeting someone on his travels that makes sense as to why there wasn't any further communication it was just written all down on a piece of paper that may he he may have even had in that folder with him 
And that's what got him down there. Yeah. And it's not a career job. So if he had to go back to St. George, it was no big deal. Right. I really hope he just hitchhiked, hitchhiked somewhere and he blended into the homeless community and wherever he is, he's happy. I hope so, too. Not that that's what I think happened, but that's what I hope happened. Yeah. So we'll just leave you with some information about Stephen. Stephen Trell Kocher was 30 years old at the time of his disappearance. Today, he would be 36 years old. He is 5 foot 11 or 180 centimetres tall, of average build weighing about 180 pounds or about 82 kilograms. Stephen is of Caucasian appearance and has blonde hair and blue eyes. Stephen has a surgical scar behind each ear and a series of birthmarks on his abdomen forming a shape similar to the Nike swoosh. At the time he went missing, Stephen was wearing a white button-down dress shirt, blue jeans or dockers pants and white sneakers. Stephen was your clean-cut all-American type guy with no criminal or drug-related history. Anyone with more information about Stephen should contact the Henderson Police at 702-267-5000 or the St George Police on 435-627-4319. Thank you, Marissa, for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Stephen's case is one that I followed for several years, I get a lot of requests for it, but um, I always tell people if it's been on disappeared, I try to, you know, give somebody else the time. So I've, I, and then when you guys said that you were going to do this, I was like, oh, I'll do that one. I, I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with it. It really interests me because it's a really good mystery. It's like every, everything is just like, what the heck was going on here? So I think it's a really interesting story. And I too hope that they find him that they're able to recover him, whether he's still alive or he has since passed. So if you haven't already listened, you must go back and binge listen to all of the Vanished podcast. Marissa does a great job over there. And we are Insight Podcast, obviously, and you can find us on iTunes. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to both of our podcasts. It does really help. I also recommend that you do join the group especially this week where I will have all the maps and the footage. If you want to send us an email, it is insightfulpod at gmail.com. Twitter is insightfulpod and Instagram is insightpod. And we'll also have all the maps and the footage on our website, which is insightpod.com. Head on over there for the show notes, um, all the links to our Patreon page, PayPal, the merchandise, Basically all the ways that, you know, keep the show afloat and help us pay our bills. And before we go, just a reminder, no show next week. Charlie and I have some behind-the-scenes stuff to figure out, and we also have some really big episodes coming up that we need to get our heads around, so we need a bit of a lie-down. So thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.